What's up, everybody? Part three, nope, not part three. Let me start over. Part two to my On Playing With series. I have done no preparation for any of these. I'm just winging it because I have all these thoughts in my head for long periods of time. And then I finally go, okay, I'm going to put them down. And it's worked out for me so far. So we're going to continue doing it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah. So you've listened to, hopefully, at this point, on playing with friends, uh, this little mini series dedicated to the dynamics of playing games with people, different groups of people, different demographics of people, different types, styles, forms of people. So the second episode is called On Playing With Parents, and it's not probably something that many people have a ton of experience with. I can imagine that's probably pretty rare, but in the Sawyer family, we have a tremendous amount of experience with this. And so we'll just dive right into it. We'll just get right into the nitty gritty. So in 2018, let's even go further back than that. <clears throat> in 2012, I spent the summer in St. Louis. This is something that I've talked about in articles that I've written and uh, in other podcasts that I've recorded. But in 2012, I spent the summer in St. Louis. A little bit of backstory. I was a sophomore in college. My dog is annoying. Teddy, do me a favor. Shut up. I was, I was a sophomore in college. I had just quit baseball. I had just gone to Seattle for a journalism conference. After quitting baseball, I didn't really know what to do with my time. And so I spent the initial time kind of doing nothing, fucking off. And pretty quickly remembered that there was a school newspaper on campus. And I loved writing. I'd, I have books that I've written when I was in third grade that I've found in moves. I've been writing for a long time. And I stopped playing baseball. Suddenly had all this free time. So I spent a lot of it playing games, sure. And then watching movies also. And I realized, hey, there's a school newspaper. Hey, I know a lot of the people writing for the school newspaper because I was a writing student. I was a creative writing major. And I decided, let's see if they'll be willing to let me write about movies. It doesn't sound like it's too crazy when you listen to it now, but in 2012, I was pretty unsure of myself, and I went into the Rambler, the Illinois College School newspaper office, and said, hey, I want to write for the Rambler, but I don't want to write articles about what's going on on campus, really. I want to write about events, entertainment. And more specifically, I want to write about movies. Always in the back of my head thinking there's a chance that they say yes and that I can ask the follow-up question of, will you pay for my movie tickets if I go? And I ended up being able to ask both of those questions and getting the affirmative answer for both of those questions. And so I'm pretty positive the first movie that I reviewed for school was Drive. And the theater in, in Jacksonville was small. I went to RMC uh, cinemas, probably RM cinemas, but we called them RMC cinemas or RMC just for shorthand and went and saw Drive, the Nicholas Winding Refn movie starring Ryan Gosling, uh, also featuring Carey Mulligan and Oscar Isaac and Brian Cranston. Uh, and I walked out of that movie theater, I'll never forget, getting in my car and turning it on and going to drive away and being like, this doesn't feel like a getaway car. It was a 2010, 2008 Hyundai Elantra. <laughs> Not exactly a getaway car. But I remember queuing up the soundtrack and listening to that and being like, hell yeah, and then writing my first review. 
I went on to go watch things like Contagion and Godzilla a couple years later. I can't think of many other ones for some reason, but I watched a bunch Frozen. I think I wrote about Frozen 2. Or no, the first one. Jesus, I wrote about Frozen in college. I ended up also going on to work at that movie theater, so the paper paying me back for my movie tickets went away pretty quickly because I just got to go see movies for free. But that kind of sparked something. So I started doing those movie reviews in February-ish. And then spring break, not spring training, spring break comes along. And up until that point in my life, spring break had been completely preoccupied with baseball. And I had completely eschewed baseball as a thing that I did in my free time. And with the extra free time, I realized I get spring break to myself. And by the serendipity of pure circumstance, I'm writing movie reviews for the paper with a bunch of people that I've interacted with a lot because we're in the writing program. And the advisor for the newspaper, a professor that I still to this day greatly appreciate and interact with relatively frequently, she's a traveling Professor now goes all over the world and it's kind of insane to just like watch what she posts on Facebook and be like, damn, that's you're living nine months here, nine months there. Just a crazy cool fucking life. Anyway, the advisor and the the rambler had petitioned to the school to go to Seattle for a journalism conference and they had accepted it and I was invited. So I got a fully expense paid trip. Well, not fully expense paid. My flight covered to and from Seattle uh, in the first spring break after I quit playing baseball. And when you go on trips like that, if anyone has experience on going on trips like that, you know, school trips are an interesting thing because you're going with students and there's this kind of, oh, we're we're out doing fun stuff and the school paid for us to be here. So there's a little bit of responsibility, but also like, I'm going to walk around Seattle. And that was very much what that trip was. But Alternatively for me, it was also this awakening moment, sitting down in several panels and discussions and little seminars about what it meant to be a journalist, what that job entailed, what the work would look like, how you would interact with people, how you would report. All those things left a pretty indelible mark on me that never went away. I'm still doing it to this day. And there are people that I made connections with back then that I'd interact with after I came back that I haven't interacted with in a in a pretty long time, more than a decade at this point. But what stuck were the values and, most importantly, the level of excitement. I remember sending a text to Ben who had encouraged me in this path. I remember sending a text to him while I was there. This is what I want to do. Like, I figured it out. Like baseball, nah, okay, I'm done with that. That's fine. This, writing about, and I talked to a couple of people that wrote about sports, and I was like, I could write about the baseball team. I could write about the Cardinals someday. The former did happen. The latter hasn't happened yet. But, hey, there's uh, plans in place to maybe start a Cardinals-focused podcast for Nerdy Bits here coming up. So we'll just see where that leads. But I remember thinking, I can do this. And it's not so much a rare opportunity to earn as an adult as a professional athlete is. Given 10 years, 12 years have passed since that date. And I would say pretty 
strongly that journalism has fallen out of a lot of people's good graces. And I don't think it's because journalism is bad. I think it's because we've replaced actual journalism with whatever the popularity contest is you see on news networks. And I'm not going to be the guy that sits down and goes, the mainstream media. But I will say that they are incentivized to put stuff on screen that gets people sitting down and watching. And over the last 25 years, I've been pretty attuned to the fact that Americans really like reality television. And so the factuality, the factualness, the veracity of what you're seeing doesn't always matter when it's entertaining. And I would say that about everybody, right? There are obviously worse offenders, but I think that by and large, big national news organizations are incentivized to put what's uh, put something on the screen that's going to keep you there. And that's kind of always been a friction point for me. But that maybe I'll do a, a fourth uh, mini specific episode about why I'm a journalist. Maybe I should do that. But to bring things back to the main conversation, after coming back from that trip to Seattle in 2012, my uncle struck a deal between my grandparents and himself and got me the ability to go down and stay with them. And now to be very, very, very clear, I don't think they would have cared if I came down to stay with them for the summer. I loved my grandparents. I currently love my grandparents. And still, nevertheless, he brokered a deal in which I come down and work with him, not along, not with him, work alongside him on his schedule on things Game journalism, because it was in that same phone call or that same week of phone calls that he said, you love writing, you love games, write about games. And for a person that touts himself as pretty smart, the amount of impact that that little relevatory series of sentences had on me <laughs> was astounding. I was like, oh, my God. Holy shit, that's it. How did I never think of that? And to this day, I am frustrated that I didn't think of that first. But at the same time, I'm grateful that my uncle had the clarity to point it out. And I made him cry at Comic-Con in 2019 when we were doing really cool shit on press credentials. And I was like, this is the reason I'm here. And then I got to reward him with that for that for uh, in 2021 when we got to go to the Game Awards. Still, all of that important to know, but not particularly important to this conversation. What it leads to is in the summer of 2012, I'm in St. Charles living with my grandparents, writing about games, writing for websites like Masonic Gamer and Leviathan, a website that still exists, but is a little weird. And while we're writing and playing all these games and I'm living with my grandparents, my grandma gets deeply, deeply interested in the prospect of playing video games, because after all, I've decided to make a career out of it. And Ben and I have been doing it for, at that point, decades. So she found a way to sneak upstairs at night after my grandfather had gone to sleep and were, I, I want to say wormed her way, but like that has a connotation that she did it and we didn't want it. She absolutely found a way onto the Xbox and I'll never forget being in the adjacent room and hearing her say, die, little midget, because she was playing Borderlands and shooting the little mini uh, bar 
not barbarians, the little crazy guys uh, who are called midgets. She was saying, die, midget, and shooting and laughing maniacally. That would catalyze something. And to be very clear, my grandma had played games before, right? She's 71 currently, and, you know, just 12 years ago, she was only 59, and there was ample time before that for her to have interacted with games, and she she did. My uncle wrote... Excuse me, I wrote about my uncle getting a Nintendo for Christmas uh, the year I was born, 1991. And my grandma thinking, it'll just be something that he he'll, will get it because he keeps asking for it. But surely, after a couple of months, he'll be bored of it and he'll move on. And that is consistently one of the funniest and most recurring jokes in this family because my grandma gets into Borderlands a little bit that summer. And then we put her in front of Portal, and it just lights her brain up like a switchboard. And she goes through that and beats it with her help, and then goes to play Portal 2, and is better, and is figuring things out on her own. And then she's like, well, I gotta do this. Luckily for her, in 2013, the new Xbox, the Xbox One, came out, and so we had Xbox 360s we could get rid of, so she inherited a 360. Played through Mass Effect 1 and 2 with... Well, she skipped one at first, because let's be completely honest, that game is great, but not exactly a page-turner, and certainly not mechanically very fun. They fixed it a lot in the remake. Don't come after me. But Hot Take, Mass Effect 1, pretty hard-to-play game. Not so Hot Take, Mass Effect 1, very good game. But she played through Mass Effect 2, and that was it. She was sold. She went back and played Portal uh, Portal 1 and Portal 2 by herself and then would later go on to play Mass Effect 2. And the reason why I say this moment would be huge in 2012 is because that was the start of something, where my grandma would negotiate this treaty with my grandfather that when he would take his nap, she would play games. And he was hard of hearing anyway, so he would just yank his earplugs out, earbuds, his hearing aids, whatever you want to fucking call them. He would yank his hearing aids out, belly down on the, on the bed. My grandma would play a couple hours or something. Key also to this is after I graduate in 2014, moving down to St. Louis, which I have never left. I've been here since then. The 10-year anniversary of me moving down here comes up in June this year. And Destiny is on the horizon. And now we've dragged her through a Halo campaign or two, but she doesn't fully understand the might that is Bungie's ability to make a good technical satisfying tactile shooter experience and destiny captures our imaginations that summer of 2014 it captured a lot of people's imaginations i remember smoking in between dorms in college knowing this game was coming out my senior year and looking up at the stars and having this wistful i belong up there feeling because of the potential that this game had right and you can argue either either here or there about whether or not Destiny ever delivered on that potential. I would say probably not to its fullest extent. But Destiny was a monolith in our family. We talked about it. We watched all the videos. We had, for years at this point, become the E3 family. We would show up and hang out in June and watch E3. We continued to be that family, but sadly, a few weeks ago, it was announced that E3 is dead. But... Summer Game Fest, Key 3, as we like to call it, for Jeff Keighley. 
continues the tradition. And we have parties. We barbecue. We sit down with coolers and beers and grill the meats and terrible foods. Foods that are terrible for you, not that are terrible to eat, obviously. They're just the worst. The bratwurst. Anyway, we still do this. We sit down, we watch Summer Game Fest and just laugh and cheer. One of my favorite experiences of hosting a party that I've ever had was hosting the party where Cyberpunk was announced and Keanu Reeves came out on stage and said, no, you're breathtaking. I had a room full of people who literally screamed and shouted when he walked on stage. And my wife didn't have to deal with it because she and the kids were in Florida. But that moment left a mark. That's maybe the theme so far in this first 15 minutes. Things that leave marks. So 2014 comes around, I moved down. Destiny's hot on the collective mindset, hot in the zeitgeist, if you will. And my buddy gets married, and I have to go out of town for the wedding on the weekend that is the Destiny 1 open beta. My grandma doesn't have an Xbox One at this point, but I've pre-ordered it, so I have access to the open beta. And she puts her profile on my Xbox One and plays the beta while I'm gone at a wedding for like 10 hours. Mind you, the beta started on a Friday, ended on a Sunday or something like that, maybe a Monday. I was gone Friday night. I was back Sunday morning. She played for 10 hours. And that's when you start to see patterns more clearly, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty, and you'll always look back and go, oh, yeah, you could always see it. That's what I've done so far in this podcast. But there was a very clear, like, oh, shit, this has become something. And Ben and I were ecstatic. Over the moon, even. We were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So we ended up getting her an Xbox One for Christmas that year. We ended up getting her Destiny One. And Destiny became one of her favorite things. She played that game a ton, largely by herself, I think, but definitely with no small amount of time dedicated to playing it alongside me and my group of friends. The same group of friends I mentioned in the previous episode of On Playing With that formed really in co- while I was in college and formed around Battlefield and then formed around Mass Effect 2's multiplayer, which was incredible and was never really replicated, and then formed around Destiny and was the thing that we did, despite the fact that only three people at a time could do it. Raids, taking six people, doing the Vault of Glass the first time. That group of friends was the group of friends that played Destiny with my grandma. And then it was off to the races. She played all sorts of things. She got into Dishonored. She got into Assassin's Creed a little bit. She played through Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 when Mass Effect 3 came out because she wanted to re-familiarize herself with the story and actually do the first one on her own instead of just going through the little motion comic choose which decisions you made pre-prologue to Mass Effect 2 if you didn't play the first one. Her list of games became long and extensive, which are the same word, but both true. We also had a PS3 in the house because Ben was still living with them for a while and had a PS3. So she played through Flow and Flower and and um, Journey, the three games by that game company. That's the name of the company, for those of you who don't know. They're called That Game Company, led by Genova Chen, uh, music by Austin Wintory, who's gone on to be in a, 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 a huge name in game composition, game composing. So she played Flow and Flower and Journey. She played Braid 
she played Bastion, the first the first big game by Supermassive Supergiant, excuse me, Supergiant Games. Supermassive Black Hole is a Muse song. But all of a sudden, Ben and I are playing with our huge group of friends, and Nanny has an Xbox and is playing pretty consistently. I don't remember exactly when she came up with the name Calamity XT Jane. It's very good. Her name is Christy Jane. But when, you know, again, things that leave a mark, when that gamer tag came on my Xbox the first time because she logged in after changing her name, I remember going, yep, another moment where you realize this is very real. And so as one could be led to expect, the FOMO started to spread throughout the family. My brothers kind of always played games a little bit. My youngest brother, Jordan, absolutely played a lot of games. He watched us play and wanted to play. He also played baseball because I played baseball. Yeah, he played basketball. Um, so Jordan gets into playing games. Ben and I still play. Our friends are getting closer and closer with with Grandma. They just call her Grandma. It's great. Sometimes people will call her Christy, but most of the time it was just Grandma. Similar to the fact that I was called Nephew for about four years before people actually started calling me just my name. And to this day, if I happen to a party, people are still like, what's up, Nephew? It's been a long time since I've heard that because it's been a long time since i played with them. And that's not mentioning Meat Shield, the friend of ours who has a baritone voice and always called me Lube Woob instead of Lub Wub. I miss those guys. But that's the way you know that it was great. FOMO started to spread through the family, though. And so, fast forwarding a bit, right? I moved to St. Louis in 2014. We're playing games. My cousin, my grandmother's nephew, uh, who lives in Colorado, thinks it's amazing that my grandma is playing games with me and thinks, well, my mom should play. Now, his mom is my grandma's sister, Casey. So he tries to figure out ways to work her into playing games. And fast forward even a little bit more, she's had a system. She's played a little bit, but not much. My grandfather passed in 2018 in May. And there was this, when people, when you lose someone that's integral to your identity, right? There's a whole bevy of emotions and various forms of grief that show up and track with you for the next few months and years and perhaps even decades. I had a dream about my grandfather literally two days ago and it destroyed me. And I haven't cried about his absence in a long time. The dream destroyed me, and then I woke up and shared it with my wife and just lost it again, and then tried to share it with my grandma the next day and lost it again. Grief is a interesting beast that never really goes away. It just changes shape. And in the vacuum that follows the immediate passing, it's immediate and sudden passing of a loved one. They were married for more than 40 years. I spent the following week doing... I was supposed to take some time off of work. Uh, and he died on a Friday. So Saturday and Sunday. So it was a three-day weekend. Luckily, and perhaps luck is a weird thing to say because I probably would have done this regardless. But luckily, I knew the foreman of the warehouse I was working in. And I'd known him for a long time. He used to babysit me. Philip was a great guy. Philip said, take all the time you need. So I 
exercised that opportunity and took the next week off and spent that week trying to be a conduit for other emotions, trying to be a distraction from current emotions. My grandma and I went to the art museum and, and then grabbed lunch and then would sit down and think about it and cry for a little bit and then go somewhere else and I'd drop her off and I would go home and button everything up and try to be stable for my wife and our young first kid. And I did that for five days. And then my grandma's sister, Casey, came up and kind of relieved me of that duty. Uh, something I was grateful for, but like the soldiers of the Battle of the Bulge, Battle of the Bulge, grateful for it, but say now, I didn't need relief. Thanks, but we didn't need it. I've always loved that about that that uh, conflict. That those guys were trapped in outside of Bastogne doing the Battle of the Bulge for weeks and months, and then reinforcements finally break through, and the first people that encounter them go, "What? We didn't need help." <laughs> the particular level of badassery. But my my grandma's sister Casey comes through, relieves me, and then a few days later she goes home, and years later, not even years later. I let me re, let me rewind rewind a little bit. Immediately following this, I'm trying to figure out ways to keep my grandma active, keep my grandma doing things, because there's that fear you have, you know, of people who are not old but elevated in age, who lose a partner and lose drive, lose the will to live, and suddenly the other half of that equation passes shortly after. My grandma was never at risk of that, I don't think, but I was afraid of it. So I started a podcast called Procedural Generations, a name which my wife came up with. She's a fox. And um, we played through games. The first season of Procedural Generations was all about the Mass Effect games and how those felt to us. We did a short series on, well, we did a long series on Halo that got us press credentials to Halo Outpost Discovery, the little in-person, little is the wrong way to describe that, the short-lived but super amazing in-person road show they took around the country and built out convention centers and such as if they were museums to the Halo universe. Uh, we got to meet Steve Downs and uh, Jen Taylor and Kiki Wolfkill, and we just got to meet all of the coolest people working at 343 now because Bungie no longer made Halo. And while doing that specific series on Halo, we decided, well, what if we decided to make it about Bungie and Halo? So let's talk about Destiny. And we brought in Christian, my cousin, my my grandmother's nephew, and Casey, uh, and also my mom and my uncle. Because after my grandma... After my grandpa had passed, Christian saw an opportunity that was revealed in this recording that we did talking about Destiny. Christian saw an opportunity to get his mom into games as a method of keeping her sister out of the dumps. And so Casey learned, put her nose to the grindstone, really put her nose to the grindstone. And like, as a, one of her first games probably on a list of 20, right? But one of the first games that she really dedicated time to learned how to play Destiny. And my grandma and her sister became a war party 
and consistently every week, sometimes every day, play Destiny to the point where my grandma had 14 or 15 days in Destiny 1 and then Destiny 2 had three max light characters until she decided to focus on the one that she likes and they still play today. Destiny 1 came out in 2014. They still play Destiny today. Is that relationship souring a little bit? Yeah, of course. Destiny's not what it used to be, but they still play. And so I also mentioned in there that my mom was a part of this podcast. After my grandpa passed and games became bigger and I started proc gens to be a thing that I did with my grandma to keep her doing things and keep her experiencing new forms of art and different ways to approach games and thinking and knowledge and all these things. My mom started to get that FOMO. And so we ended up getting her an Xbox for one of the Christmases that shortly followed. And all of a sudden my mom, Casey and nanny were all playing destiny again, something they still do to this day. And it's almost weird to look back at it because 2012 seems like it was so long ago. It was, it was 12 years ago, but there's also this really clear memory I have of like grandma sitting down to kill midgets and borderlands to portal and the cake is a lie. And do you remember when you killed me twice? And Mass Effect and hearing my grandma talk about Tali throwing herself off a cliff in Mass Effect 3 and me being like, oh my God, that did not happen for me. And my grandma going back hours and replaying it until she didn't lose Tali. Keyless a lie, am I right? And then it just, as, as quick as it started a decade, more than a decade later, we're doing family game night every Monday night. My mom, my grandma, Ben, and myself. And it's, it's us and the moms, that's what we say. And we started around 2020, you know, the, the isolationist period for most people in the United States and around the world where people were trying to be very careful about what they did in person. That was how we stayed in touch and how we stayed close and how we stayed updated and how we hung out with each other. And we played through all of the story bits of Sea of Thieves first, which was great. I'm very tired of that game now, but in the, at the time it served a purpose. And that purpose was to give my mom and grandma a kind of crash course on exploratory games and platforming in the first person, which Destiny also very much did, but here in another context, right? Broadening those skills by trying them in a different setting. After that, we played through... Well, we played some Diablo 4 this year. We tried From Space. We've played Deep Rock. We play a lot of Deep Rock still. We've played... Halo games. My grandma's played through all the Halo games. That was part of the Procedural Generations podcast we did. We went and replayed through all of them, and I did it on stream. You can watch those if you go to the Nerdy Bits YouTube and find Procedural Generations. You can watch every Halo game all the way through Reach. I don't... Did we do... Inf we didn't record all of Infinite. That's a shame. Maybe we did. But I'm not entirely sure. But every game but Infinite, though. One, two, three, ODST, Reach, four, five. 
we've played a lot of things together. And so we do family game night every Monday. And so the reason I wanted to talk about this now fully 30 minutes in is in the same context of the first episode of this on playing with friends where I got into talking about how dynamics change, right? And friends leave and friend groups fall apart and the games change and therefore friend groups evolve and new people come in and old people leave and Life situations change. So the guy that you see all the time logs off and it just says offline. And that's the last time you saw them log off because they their life changed. Their kid grew up. They got a new job. That stuff still happens in our family group, but in a different way and in different ways. Because my, the moms are great. And the fact that they're playing games is incredible. But for my uncle and myself, sometimes that can be a little f- less than frictionless. One of our, one of my favorite things to call back to, especially when I teach and I'm teaching students who are in their late teens, early twenties, who are talking about games being trash is that there's a level of narcissism and entitlement that comes with having played games for so long. That when a game comes out and it's not exactly what you want or it's not exactly what you expected, you shift gears into saying that it's bad, trash, terrible, the devs are lazy, how could they fuck it up? You know, all the nasty stuff you see all over Twitter now. We played Anthem as part of Family Game Night. It was free. It's on Game Pass and EA Play is part of Game Pass. So we downloaded it for free. Ben and I played that game when it came out with several friends and enjoyed it until we realized it wasn't going to change. Right. It was, it got to a point, didn't go any higher than that point, And it just kind of stuck there. We got into that game, giving the moms full disclosure ahead of time. This game had the potential to be very good. It kind of fell on its face. I think Anthem next had been canceled fully a year and a half before we got to this. Still a thing I do not forgive EA for doing. That game deserved another shot. And if we have any fucking evidence today with games like Halo 5 and games like fucking Cyberpunk and hopefully games like Redfall, giving up on something within a year of it releasing is fucking wild. But EA's not always been a company that people love. For all intents and purposes, EA has always been a company that people hate. And in this case, maybe for good reason. And also, Bioware made some huge mistakes. Read the Jason Schreier piece about how Anthem failed based on the fact that the people in leadership just banked on Bioware magic making it work. People taking FMLA and doing so for burnout and mental health reasons and never returning to making games. Just terrible shit. But we go into Anthem telling them, like, this is, uh, it's okay. And within, like, 30 minutes, Ben and I are, like, sending messages to each other or just out loud in the chat responding to how my mom and grandma are reacting to this game. Because let me tell you, folks listening, if you've played games for more than 10 years, you're probably an asshole. And I don't mean that to say as a person, your character, you're an asshole. What I mean by that is you, we, we all figured out a way to expect something that's not a given. And 
because it's not given, the reactions that we give to things when they come out are largely unearned. And I don't mean unearned as in you can't be upset, but I mean unearned as in the level of upset that you are is unbecoming. When people tell me games are trash, I'm like, oh, you just didn't like it. It wasn't for you. That's my favorite thing to say now when writing reviews about games or talking about games that I don't like. It wasn't for me. It's something that Marvel and Disney fans should, or Star Wars fans, Marvel and Star Wars fans should fully adopt and enforce on themselves. The movie's not trash. You just didn't like it. It's fucking art. Get over it. You're allowed to not like it. You're not allowed to demand that they remake it in your image. What the fuck? 30 minutes into playing Anthem, we're flying through the open world, which, to be fair, is pretty empty. That notwithstanding, it's fucking gorgeous. My mom and grandma, the moms, are going, this is amazing. Look how pretty it is. Look at all this stuff. We're flying. And Ben and I are like, oh, shit. We're jaded assholes. Oh, no. <laughs> And so I say all this to point out that, like, there's a difference when watching somebody encounter something for the first time who hasn't encountered something for the first time so many times that they've started to see themselves as an expert for how things should be encountered for the first time. They were elated. They were flying around like Iron Man and shooting rockets off their shoulders and diving into underwater caverns and fighting big creatures and causing combustion and oh they were just eating it up and ben and i had to sit there and go well maybe maybe we're a little rough on things because we've been doing this so long i've always had the theory that maybe let me take a, a brief digression if you listen to the last episode you know this happens I noticed a few years back that I would I love the guys at Waypoint, Vice's uh, gaming vertical that's no longer and now they're at Remap. I loved Waypoint for years. And I noticed even in them, people that I deeply respected and who tended to be more, one, forgiving, but B, B, one, forgiving, but two, more eloquent in their criticism. I noticed that even they were complaining about things that I started to sort of earmark as perhaps not so much the fault of the game as much as it's the fault of the journalist. And I don't, again, want to say journalism's bad. I've seen people saying game journalism. I don't want to say game journalism's bad. I have seen people on Twitter this week saying that exact thing, and it fucking sucks. People saying that even if they're your actual friends, game journalists aren't your friends. Fuck off. Just fuck off. Get better friends. If you're afraid of your friends taking advantage of you because their job is game journalist and you're a game developer, you're, you have bad friends. You don't trust your friends. That's the person, not the role. I'm friends with a lot of game developers. I'm a journalist. I've never once asked them for prying information, and I am not their friend so that I can get exclusives. That's dog shit. And whoever said that, a person that I follow for a while and I still follow because yeah but fuck off it's dumb but I noticed things in waypoint reviews that I thought were maybe not the fault of the game so much as they were the fault of the journalist and I say that broadly 
the fault of the journalist because as a game journalist, you are playing 10, 20, 30, 40 games a year. And eventually you will grow tired of things that repeat themselves within the industry. One of the reviews that I read, excuse me, at Waypoint that I understood where it was coming from, but didn't understand why it existed was a review about Far Cry. I think it might've been Cameron Kunselman. I absolutely love Cameron Kunselman's work, but this review just was weird to me and I'll explain why. Cameron Kunselman hated the game Far Cry 6 because they just couldn't keep doing it again and again and again. And I don't mean Ubisoft and I don't mean Far Cry. (coughs) I mean, Cameron Kunselman was tired of playing games that didn't change. And I can understand that. Especially if you've played all the Far Cry games and especially if you've played any of them in rapid succession because you're trying to prepare yourself for a lead up to a new one. But if you're a journalist and you've played 30, 40 games and you've experienced the wide variety of gameplay that exists, returning to a Far Cry is going to feel repetitive. 100%. Returning to a Far Cry that's not too dissimilar from the last one is going to feel repetitive. No doubt. But... The reason I say it maybe is the fault of the journalist and not the game, and the reason I'm saying journalist broadly, the role journalism, is because I have most friends of mine are not game journalists. As a matter of fact, I think maybe one or two of my friends are also game journalists. Everyone else plays one, two, three to five games a year. Game Pass obviously skews that number a little bit. But when you're playing one to five games a year as an adult with responsibilities like kids and work and health and all those other things, Far Cry comes out every two years. Did come out every two years. There's a good chance that you get each, if you liked one, you're going to get the next one. And there's a good chance that because there's been two years between those things and you don't play that many games, that when you play it again, or rather you play another Far Cry that feels like the last one, you're not as overly critical about it feeling like the last one. You liked the last one. You don't play that many games. So maybe, possibly, some of the bad reviews of games that are just like the last one come from a place where people who experience Almost everything, or as much as they can, almost everything is an absurd thing to say. 13 or 14,000 games came out on Steam last year. That's not what I'm trying to say. But when you play that many things, and then you play something that's the same as the last version of that game, I can understand being frustrated by it. But when the normal person does not do that, I think that there's some boundary setting you have to do some amount of stepping back you have to do to say I didn't like this because it felt like all the other ones and I've played all the other ones and remember them in a way that makes repeating it not fun but somebody who loves these games because of what they are you're gonna like this game because it's more of what they are anyway Diversion, digression, 
over. Soapbox. Step down from. Removed. We noticed that all over the place in playing with the moms. Games that we'd gotten tired of, games that we didn't like very much, games that we thought were bad when we played them the first time, or games that we had abandoned completely because they weren't very good when we played them. We somehow ventured our way back to them with the moms, played them, and went, oh, shit, this isn't that bad. Purely because we were able to watch and interact with the game through the lenses of the moms. <clears throat> Anthem is the best example, but it is not the only. Halo 4 has a weird taste in a lot of people's mouths. Halo 5 has an even weirder taste in a lot of people's mouths. We played through both of those games, and I'll tell you what, I'm a biased voice on this because I'm a Halo stan, fan, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Halo 4 and 5 are very good games. Do they feature as much Chief? Does 5 feature as much Master Chief as I would like? No. Does that mean that the game is bad? No. Does it mean it wasn't what I wanted? Yeah. But Halo 5 is a great game, and the end of that game is extremely interesting. Halo 4 is a very good game. And, like, I understand people being like, I don't want to know about Master Chief. He's just the dude in a suit. Fine. That's fine. But for my family, that wasn't ever how we saw him, and also that isn't how we see him currently. And also we were thrilled to see the human side of Chief come out more, especially this is a spoiler, so if you haven't played through the Halo games, sorry. Especially after Cortana's fate and the things she says to him before she goes away and the thing that Lasky says to him about losing comrades in battle. You're not a machine. And the way Chief shudders at that sentence and then whispers under his breath, she said that to me once about being a machine. That shit's amazing. And let me tell you, playing through with the moms, they also noticed it was amazing. And they loved it. They ate it up. The problem with playing with the moms is that they have been playing for, at this point, 10 years, but at a much reduced schedule from my uncle and myself and our other friends. Which means, inevitably, that they don't pick up on things as fast as we do. One of the first questions I ask to my game dev, get my game dev students is, if you're playing a platformer, what's the first thing you do? If you're playing a left or right platformer, what's the first thing you do? Half the class says they go left. Now, to my mom and grandmother, that would be weird. And we've asked them before. They think, why would you do that? And the people that say they go to the left answer that because, and I'm sure you listening, because you're listening to a video game podcast, have some kind of affinity for games. You know the answer to that question is because something might be hidden over there. Platformers have the visual language of moving left to right. Video games have the visual language of moving towards the light. Video games have the visual language of if there's a waterfall, check underneath it. And I am a strong proponent of if you are a video game developer and you make a waterfall and you don't put something behind the waterfall, you're a jerk. Now, not every waterfall has to have something, but everybody checks them. Everybody who plays games consistently checks behind waterfalls just to make sure. And if you put nothing behind a waterfall ever throughout your game, you might be a sociopath. I say that in jest. But the things that Ben and I have taken as inherent to playing games, they haven't fully imbibed yet. They haven't fully taken those 
curiosities and turn them into patterns. So heading towards the light, because that's where you're supposed to go or heading going forward to make whatever's currently happening. Stop, right? You're getting attacked by waves and it's endless. Ben and I will pretty quickly go, okay, this isn't stopping because we're killing them all. We need to go. My mom and grandma who I have watched play destiny will just stay and fight. And they're like, the fight took an hour. It's because they were creeping forward at like 10 paces every 10 minutes when they just needed to sprint to get to the next checkpoint so the enemies would stop spawning in the background. These are all things that provide not always small amounts of friction. And so there's that. The inherent skills and curiosities that come with playing games for more than two decades. But outside of that, there's also confidence. Ben and I have been playing games for a long time, my friends uh, included. And that generally means that just about anything that comes out now, we can pick up pretty quickly. The most recent example of this was From Space, which is a twin-stick shooter, isometric and camera angle. So it looks like Diablo plays like Helldivers, plays like Halo Spartan Assault, plays like a bunch of different games. You control your movement with one stick, you aim with the, the right stick, and then you fire which means you can move left and aim right so you're backing up and shooting. You can move right and aim right and you're walking forward and shooting. You can strafe. Excuse my annoying ass dog. And so with those things comes implied, not even implied, just natural learning. We have the ability to pick up on how a game is going to behave by recognizing how it presents itself. And that's something the moms don't exactly have. So we played from space. Here are people after an alien invasion, fighting off aliens, picking up guns, doing jobs for survivors. And it has all of the, all of the signs of being a really fun, really interesting game to interact with, but it may have been the first game of that style that the moms have ever encountered. So that night was stressful. Ben and I got stressed out. We were trying to say, okay, well, let's go over here and watching people walk directly into enemies and die without shooting or shooting in the wrong direction or saying, where are you? That is maybe I should get a t-shirt. It just says, where are you? And is the quote is attributed to the moms. They don't understand how to use mini-maps the same way that we do. I'm not saying they don't understand how to use mini-maps. They do. But they don't understand to use how to use them with the same instinct that Ben and I do. Playing Diablo 4, one of the biggest pain points was them being unable to find us on the map. I think Diablo's map is pretty easily parsable. I've been playing games for 25 years. They've been playing games for 10, but you could probably say 5 because the amount that I've played games over 25 years is largely every night for an hour or two. Some nights for many hours. Some nights not at all, but like hundreds of hours a month, a week, or a week, hundreds of hours a year. I don't think I've played less than 1,100 hours a year in more than a decade. And so... 
there's this, it's a handicap. And I don't mean that in the sense where that word has a negative connotation. I mean that in the golf sense, right? When you get a handicap, someone or bowling, my wife bowls and her family bowls. Like her dad's in the bowling hall of fame. It's fucking ridiculous. Her sister bowled at a college that was number two in the nation twice in a row. She's been on ESPN. Amanda's bowling average is like 220 or 230 for years. Suffice it to say, I never took her on more than one bowling date. Because after the first one, I went, this doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> a handicap in bowling. Your average is 220. You're bowling in a tournament. The person you're bowling against's average is 170. You're pitted against each other. They may have a handicap of 10 pins, 15 pins, to prop up their score to make them able to compete against you. It's skill-based matchmaking, right? You're playing Call of Duty. You are a level 55. You've played this much. You average this many kills per match. You average this many deaths per match. You matchmake. The skill-based matchmaking goes, all right, here are your averages. Here are these people's averages. Let's try and build a match that's the best balance of those averages so that the competition is most equal. People complain about this as not being fun because they can't trounce people. I get that, but I also don't because running around and killing everybody as a person who played baseball and had won by the 10 run rule and lost by the 10 run rule, losing by the 10 run rule is the worst way to lose. They stop the game because you're losing by 10 and it's too late in the game. They don't think you can come back. Winning by the 10 run rule is we're just stomping all over these people. I don't want it to keep going. Yeah, it's fun for a minute, but then all of a sudden you're like, I can see the other humans on the other side of this. They're fucking miserable. So playing with the moms is often a handicap. Handicap. Because Ben and I could pick up just about anything. We've been playing for a very long time. They can't. And what that does to a person psychologically is mixed. Sometimes that means that they are testy when we're trying to walk them through how to do something. They're like, I know. Okay. My daughter does the same thing. We will talk about that at length when I do on playing with kids. Sometimes we say it less than charitably. Comes out a little sharp because we're a little frustrated. As a parent, it's interesting. As a parent, it's, it's very much like what this next episode is going to be about playing with my daughter. It's very similar to interacting with children. And I'm, know that there's a good chance that one or both of them listen to this. So I want both of you to know, I'm not saying you are children, but it is almost as if the developmental timeline mirrors that of a child. And I don't mean, man, there's no way to say this without sounding bad. So let me get through it. What I'm trying to say is when you're trying to teach somebody new, when you're trying to teach somebody something new, it's more than just walking them through the steps to understand it. Because inherently, there is a difference in knowledge that may mean that their ability to understand it is not accessible via just walking through the steps to understand it. I get upset with my three-year-old son for not listening sometimes, and I catch myself as I'm starting to get upset and realize he's three he doesn't know what frustration means. He's heard the word. I've heard him say, I'm so frustrated. He doesn't know what the fuck that means. So when I'm like, how don't you, how do you not understand this? 
I have to like, oh, wait, 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 wait. He fucking can't. Right? I had a chem, I had a, not chemistry, algebra teacher in high school. Uh, I can't, Schopenhorst. Remembered his name, Mr. Schopenhorst. That motherfucker was smart as shit. And he understood math like it was born in his brain. And he literally one day in the front of the class while walking through some kind of algebraic formula turned around to the class after explaining it for, count it, the second time. Turned around to the class and said, I don't understand how you guys don't get this. And, you know, the little mosaic uh, thing that went around on TikTok were all bits and pieces of yada yada. I've remembered that my whole life. That happened fucking in 2007? That happened... 14 years ago. I've, I will remember that the rest of my life because I remember thinking in that moment, oh my God, he gets it so well, he doesn't know how to explain it to people who don't have the tools to fully understand it. So there are times where we're like trying to talk to the moms and saying what's obvious to us and we have to step back and be able to say like, it's obvious to us because I've been playing games since I had the Sega Genesis. I got it in 96. I played Sonic the Hedgehog. I've been playing games since 1996. I've been playing games for almost 30 years. Ben's been playing games since 1991. Ben's been playing games for more than 30 years. And they've been playing games since 2012 and 2017, respectively, my, my grandmother and my mom. And so when we're like, you look at the map. Yeah, but there's no dots on the map. But are they around the corner of the map? Well, yeah, they're on the sides. That means we are in that direction, but further than the mini map can show. Well, I don't see you. Open your map and look. See, like that exchange has happened many times and comes across as us being acidic. And it takes being able to calm down and step back and go, okay, maps work differently in games. And they don't have a lot of experience with maps in this fashion, right? They play a lot of Destiny. The map in Destiny shows where you are, does not show where your teammates are, and isn't accessible while you're walking around. The radar in Halo shows enemies that are within 10 to 20 meters of you, but only if they're moving and only if they're moving while standing up. Because if you're playing multiplayer and you crouch and walk, you do not show up on radars the same way. And the map in Diablo is a mini map in the top right corner of your screen that you can hit a button and make it take up the whole screen. But then the map in the top right corner and the big map, the, the arrow that you, that is you turns independently of the map. The map is stationary. Some games, the map turns as you turn, and oh my god, if you play Deep Rock, the only map you get is by holding down a button, and it opens up a 3D model you have to rotate, and the picture of you, the icon for you, is facing the direction you are currently facing. And if you hold a button, you can orient yourself to the direction you are looking in the map. None of those things are easy to explain. And yet playing games every family game night means that we are going to encounter these mechanics. We are going to encounter these inherent traits in these games that Ben and I can intuit because we have 20 years on them in terms of experience and probably just eons beyond that in terms of 
innate instinctual learning because games are so much a part of our lives and have been for so long that I can pick up just about anything and be good at it. I won't fuck with Dark Souls games. Get fucked. Those games are too hard. But, and we'll talk about this again. I'll, last time I referenced the next episode, I played the first five minutes of Kana Bridge of Spirits and was like, Charlie would probably like this. Let's let her try it out. That's all I played on my own. After that, I just watched her play, and then she asked me for help. I would help. And nothing about that game was a learning curve for me. Nothing. She would get in a big fight, and a big boss would pop out, and he's carrying a shield, and he's got little orange gems sticking off of him, and he's got a big sword. And I'm like, all right, he's going to do sweeping and stabbing attacks. You're not going to be able to hit him until you get him to lower his shield. And those little orange gems that are sticking out of him, glowing, those are weak points. So if you hit those, that'll stagger him. I've never played this game before. But there is an entire shopping list of inherent knowledge I picked up by just looking at the boss that came out. And then I have to try and convey to my daughter, who's seven. Nope, she's six. She turned seven in March. She's basically seven. I have to try and convey to her who has played Crash Bandicoot, Crash Team Racing. She hasn't even played Crash Bandicoot. She's played Crash Team Racing and this. I have to convey to her, what the fuck does that mean? Think of the best way in two or three sentences you could explain this enemy has a shield that makes him unhittable until you stagger him. And staggering him means hitting him with ranged weapons on the highlighted weak points that aren't where weak points are on the body, which is probably something you wouldn't understand anyway, but instead are the glowing gems that look like the things you ordinarily pick up, but are placed on his shoulder, forehead, on his shield, on his back, and on his leg. And to get him to expose those, you have to dodge his sweeping or stabbing attacks left or right so that you can be behind or beside him. And then you have to quickly draw your bow and hit one of those weak points so that he staggers so you can run up and hit him until you can break his shield. And once his shield breaks, then you can go after him with a more balanced mix of melee strikes and ranged attacks. To a fucking six-year-old. It's insane. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever had to confront. And I'm a parent, right? Obviously. And I have to confront. I have to confront bringing life learned knowledge to a situation and to a person who doesn't have that on a daily basis. And still family game night can be frustrating because Despite the fact that I know this with my kids, despite the fact that I know this when interacting with people out in the world, despite the fact that I just know this inherently, right? Common sense isn't common. The idea of common sense doesn't exist because literally everybody's background and upbringing is different. So common sense to you, common being the operative word in this term, is not common to them. If you're Muslim and you're and someone else is raised Christian, the commonalities in your sense-making brain are going to have differences. If you are an American versus someone in Japan versus someone in Australia versus someone born in Africa versus someone born in South America, commonalities are not common. Common sense will not be shared. 
And sure, there are some inalienable things like don't kill somebody that should absolutely be common sense. That's never what anybody's talking about when they're talking about common sense. They're at like a stoplight and someone doesn't creep into the turn lane a little bit more. So when the light turns yellow, they can go ahead and turn because they're already in the intersection and no one else is coming to kind of eke out one more person through that light exchange before they have to wait for the next light change. If you weren't taught that as a fucking kid, you're not going to do it as an adult. I live in St. Louis. That might be different here because people here drive however the fuck they want. But common sense isn't common. And so playing games with the moms is this constant reminder of what they've experienced, what they've internalized, and what they are capable of applying that internalized experience to in real time. And it's fascinating deeply frustrating and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Now, are there times where I'm like, I really wish it wasn't family game night because I'd like to fuck off and do my own thing. Yes. Because I am an adult person with my own wants and needs. There are times where I'm like, it's Monday night. I don't got to do shit. Fuck. Yeah. And then my grandma who lives with me is like, see you on in a couple of hours for family game night. And I'm like, yeah. And then she leaves. And I'm like, fuck, I was going to play cocoon or I was going to get through juice on but I can't because I have to play a family game night. Yeah, I do that all the time. I did that with baseball. When I played my last season of summer baseball in 2012, 2013, my best friends, the twins, the Evans twins, were living with me in Springfield. We were playing baseball on the same team. We played during the week and on the weekends at a field in Springfield that was all turf at SHG. It was super nice. We loved it. I would be like, man, I ain't got shit to do. I was still working at the theater in Jacksonville. I was like, I don't have to go to work 30 minutes away. I don't have to do anything. It's my summer break. I'm playing Battlefield all fucking night. And then Christopher would be like, we got a game. And I'm like, ah, fuck. Damn it. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I would go do it and I would have a blast. But in the, initially I'd be like, man, God damn it. I, I really was looking forward to not doing anything. So yeah, there's some reticence that comes up when you're talking about, oh well, yeah, what's going on? We got to do family game night, and you're like, oh, fuck it, oh, goddamn it. And yes, but the example I used with baseball was in the process of me falling out of love of playing baseball. I don't think that that is the same with family game night because my reaction to damn it, I don't want to do that is the same as my reaction to when my wife goes, do you want to give the kids a bath? And I'm like, no, I will, but no. I would much rather sit on the couch and play God of War a little bit while you go give him a bath. But like my no in that situation isn't because I genuinely don't want to do it and wouldn't do it. My no in that situation is because I'm like, I'm oh, fucking, oh, yeah, I, no, I really don't, but I will. And then you go give the kids a bath and your kids are giggling and laughing the whole time because they're kids and they're wonderful. And, you know, sometimes they get on your nerves, but they're also cute as shit. And that might get on your nerves because when they do something wrong, they look at you just the right way and you're like, well, so much for being fucking mad for a long time. Playing with the moms is trying. It's tricky. It's frustrating. It's aggravating. It's nauseating. It's repetitive. It's tiresome. But it's also deeply rewarding. And bonding and the memory building and sharing a passion with somebody who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And I'm not the person that has to explain to my 
mom or grandma that it's Pokemon. They don't say Pokemon. They know. I don't have to eschew talking about things at the dinner table for Thanksgiving or Christmas because nobody else knows what the fuck we're talking about. In fact, the people who don't play games are far outnumbered by the people who do at every family gathering. Does that include my wife? Yeah, it does. My wife and my grandpa used to look at each other when the conversation at family dinner would inevitably turn to talking about video games. My wife would look at my grandpa and they would shrug and go, well, what do you want to talk about? I miss that guy. He was a funny son of a bitch. But we all play games now. And we love it. And I don't think it's ever going to stop. Does it mean that I want to do it all the time? No. Does it mean that I will do it anytime? Yes. Yes. Because there's something about sharing something you're passionate about, with, uh, passionate about with someone that you love. Whether it's your mom, your grandma, or your kid. That's what family game that is. It's two kids showing their mom's look. This is the thing that makes me happy. And then being able to step back afterwards and going, they were pretty happy during that too. That fucking rules. I don't know if I intended for these episodes to be informative or helpful for anybody processing anything. But if I did, what I would say about this is that playing games is such a privilege. The fact that we get to do it with friends across the city, across the state, across the country, across the world. We're going to play Deep Rock tonight with my uncle who's in the Netherlands. It's a privilege. And games are tricky. And hard. And I mean both of those things separately. Sometimes they're hard and tricky. And trying to explain to somebody who doesn't quite get it is frustrating. But I'm thankful that they want to get it. Because the alternative is family being completely uninterested in something that I'm deeply passionate about. And instead, they're, they're passionate right next to me. And that's amazing. If you want to follow anything the Nerdy Bits does, you can go to nerdybits.com. Check out the website. We've got all of our podcasts, all of our articles, and some information about how to watch our streams on there, streams that are starting again this week. If you want to follow Nerdy Bits on social media, we're nerdy underscore bits on Twitter and just Nerdy Bits on Blue Sky. We get our music from Monster Cat 
the music for this podcast is On My Way Up by Conroe. Monster Cat lets you subscribe, have a gold subscription, and then you can use their music and your content creation. Ugh, the word content. But if you make videos or do podcasts or stream, you can use their music without fear of a copyright strike. That fucking rules. You can follow me anywhere at Lubwub, L-U-B-W-U-B. That's Twitter, Instagram, Xbox, Blue Sky. One thing across all platforms. Makes it easy, and I don't have to have a business card with a bunch of fucking writing on it. Who trades, who trades business cards anymore? Probably actually a lot of people, just not people in my world yet. Because E3's dead, it's fine, I'm not bitter. And remember, George Bernard Shaw said, you didn't stop playing because you grew old. You grow old because you stop playing. And take it from somebody who's watched his mom and grandma stay young because they keep playing. Heed that advice. It's good advice. Play games. Have fun. Take it easy.